No Gray Zone podcast is a frank and honest conversation on topics related to sexual abuse, harassment, child exploitation, and domestic and workplace violence. The opinions are our own, based on years of experience as special victims prosecutors. Any study, book, or product we mention is based on our own review and are not sponsored. Links and titles can be found in the podcast notes. You can also learn more at rightresponseconsulting.com. Listener discretion is advised. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing. I'm just good at caring. Welcome back. I'm Katherine Marsh. And I'm Melissa Hotmeyer, and this is No Gray Zone Podcast. Today we begin our March series, and in honor of Women's History Month, we're interviewing women who have made impactful and meaningful changes in the fields of domestic violence and sexual assault. And today we are thrilled to have Joanne Archambault, the Chief Executive Director of End Violence Against Women International, with us. End Violence Against Women International, or EVAWA, is an amazing organization that provides many resources, and we encourage everyone to check out their website and social media, which we have listed in the notes. But before we go any further, Welcome to No Gray Zone, Joanne. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So Joanne, let's just start at the beginning. If you could explain what the End Violence Against Women International Organization does and what services and advocacy the organization provides for communities. I retired as a sergeant from the San Diego Police Department to found EVA. I, I really wasn't ready to retire, but I really was proud of my profession as an officer, detective, and a sergeant, and I saw how poorly we were doing in the field, you know, reading the reports that were coming in, and I knew we could do better. So this was really a calling, and I think what makes End Violence Against Women International unique is that our primary mission is always to improve the criminal justice response to gender-based crimes. So it isn't that we don't work with our allies, whether that's advocacy, assistance-based or community-based or medical healthcare professionals like forensic examiners and criminalists, but we don't train advocates to be advocates. We help advocates help their clients understand how to navigate the criminal justice system and improve all of our, our responses. And there was no other organization doing that work. It was really a, a chasm that was out there. And so I founded End Violence Against Women International to fill that void, to help law enforcement do a better job. And of course, prosecutors as well. Obviously, prosecutors, you know, they get what law enforcement gives them. And we can't expect to have our cases prosecuted if we're not doing thorough investigations that a prosecutor can take forward. And so one of the main focuses of the organization is Start by Believing, which is I think one of my favorite movements, one of my favorite things out there in terms of sexual assault and and proponents of it. So we're big proponents of it. We talk about it all the time. But can you explain to our listeners about the program and just a little bit about how it started? It's fascinating. I actually envisioned Start By Believing as a child abuse detective in about 1984, 85. I spent three years working child abuse. And I have to be honest with you, I was shocked as a woman I wasn't a mother at the time, but I couldn't believe the number of mothers that didn't believe their children. And then, of course, it wasn't just mothers, but other family members as well, friends, teachers, you know, it was shocking to me that so many would believe the suspect over the the child. And so... 
that was the beginning of me realizing that we really needed to educate our communities. And at the time, I actually put together a speakers bureau, cops, nurses. I had community members that volunteered and I would use our cases every year, analyze them to show, you know, where these cases took place, who the offenders were, you know, just data so that we could help the community understand and believe because I I knew that those community members were also going to be our future jurors. And even when we did an investigation perfectly or as good as we could, and the prosecutor did the best job they could, we often lost these cases in front of a jury because of cultural attitudes about sexual assault. So my goal was to inform the community, but it was also to help shape the future jurors of America to help them understand what these cases really look like. And then when I went to sex crimes in 1993 as a sergeant, I was dumbfounded by what I was seeing as far as the community, society, blaming victims, the stigma. I'm seeing that these victims are actually being blamed oftentimes for their sexual assaults or they're not being believed because of perceptions of victims' credibility, which I also saw in child abuse, right? Offenders will oftentimes engage in behaviors and they tell victims that they're not going to be believed. And lo and behold, when they come forward, they're not believed and it really does work. And what was really sad for me was that oftentimes uh, sexual assault victims, whether children, adolescents or adults, they begin to have problems, whether it's eating disorders, sleeping disorders, drugs, alcohol, you know, starting to fail school, run away. So an offender actually uses those negative behaviors that result from the impact of the sexual assault against the victim, which adds credibility not to the victim, but to the offender. And, And that broke my heart to actually see them not just harm them during the assault, but actually harm them throughout their life unless there's some sort of intervention to help them understand that this is actually normal, you know, offender behavior and that there are people out there, in fact, an army. That's what we've been trying to do is start by believing, which is, you know, both of you, I appreciate how much you understand and believe in this program because our goal is to create an army out there so that we can continue to make a difference in how we respond to victims, whether it's your loved one, your child, how we respond is so critical. As a cop, I, of course, was always interested in doing good investigations and prosecution, but it didn't take me long to figure out that that isn't the only way to measure success, especially in law enforcement and prosecution when so few of our cases go forward. There's got to be other measurements of success, and one of those is not adding additional harm and trauma to a victim just because you think you've got to do this investigation and prosecution in this way. You know, believing victims, supporting victims, doing the best investigation you can based on what a victim said. So it's not believe everything. It's an orientation of listening, hearing, and acting on the information. And then the evidence takes you where it takes you. It's, I I really get frustrated with a number of people who act like we're saying that we just blindly believe everything. First of all, it's a joke because we know how few of these cases make it to prosecution in front of a jury and how few of them actually result in any sort of convictions. So to suggest that we've got people serving time in prison over false reports because we all believed everything is so preposterous. But I think that those types of ridiculous accusations or charges about due process have made us stronger. You know, it's 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 definitely made us work on answering those questions, questions that I never thought people 
had to ask. <laughs> it was a little bit of a shock, right? That people actually take, start by believing and act like we're just saying, hey, you're going to interview a victim, take down their statement, and we're going to refer to the prosecutor, and you are going to present that case to jury. I mean, we all know how absurd that is, right? You're right. It is a little ridiculous that the concept of you start with belief when a victim makes an allegation and then investigate that allegation leads to false imprisonment. But when we compare sexual assault to an armed robbery or a burglary, we never once ask the victim of the armed robbery or the burglary, well, what were you doing there? Or how were you dressed? We don't do initial victim shaming or victim doubting. We start with belief when somebody reports a crime. There just is something inherent in our culture that with sexual assault, it's often met with disbelief as opposed to belief when there is the initial report. And that really does go to an inherent shame or guilt on behalf of the victim, which they should never feel because the blame rests solely on the offender. And it's why we are huge fans of start with believing and the concept of starting correctly, start with belief that the allegation occurred and do the thorough investigation and follow where the evidence goes. So we know it's the 10th anniversary of this campaign. And so in the 10 years, what have you been able to do in bringing this campaign to communities, law enforcement and survivors? Well, we're really excited because, as you said, uh, it's our 10th anniversary this year. We launched a campaign in Chicago at our annual conference in April 2011. And I have to tell you, even though I saw the need and I wanted to do something about it, a lot of times when I would be working on an issue, I, I pretty much thought just of like my own agency, my own community, San Diego law enforcement. And about 1995, I started training nationally and It's interesting to look back now, but no way in my wildest dreams would I have thought back, you know, when I was working child abuse and when we first launched the campaign that we would have 577 campaigns in the U.S. Now, we know there are a lot more. Those are folks who have reported and usually they represent community campaigns versus, you know, a single person maybe putting up a poster or doing a presentation And then we have campaigns in 23 other countries. So it's really exciting to see this campaign in Vietnam and Italy and Spain. I just never would have thought that. So we're always um, working on providing as many tools as we can. And I'm really proud because I'll tell you how much End Violence Against Women International, our board of directors, staff believes in this campaign. We're a small nonprofit and we've spent about $600,000 of our own money over the years. And that might not seem a lot to, you know, big companies, but for a little nonprofit, $600,000 of your own discretionary general fund, it's a lot. And with that, we've, of course, um, developed brochures and posters and little pocket cards. This year, we're launching a new video. I don't remember exactly what year we developed the first video, but it basically had a lot of the headlines and problems to show people because what was surprising to me is the average citizen actually doesn't know that this is the way victims respond to sexual assault. They actually think that they don't know any victims of sexual assault. So that was hard for me because, of course, as a sergeant, you know, my unit's handling a thousand felony sexual assaults a year, no child abuse, no domestic violence, because there's other units handling those. This is just 
adult adolescent sexual assault. So sometimes you lose perspective, right? I'm thinking that surely everybody understands that this is a problem, but they don't. So the first thing we did is put together a video that was very, very powerful talking about, you know, so many of these cases and how they went wrong. Well, 10 years later, it's really exciting to say that we can now show positive impact of the campaign and start by believing and and other you know other approaches because start by believing is a philosophy it isn't just a campaign it isn't just a pledge it, it's not pictures um, i mean those are all great and they give us you know hope and it motivates us to see all these people doing these wonderful things but start by believing is really about shifting our attitude are the way we talk to you and respond to victims instead of immediately questioning victims, letting a victim tell the story in the way that they're able to tell the story with the information that they're able to recall, right? It's just really an approach. So if you're really a start by believing agency, you should be seeing changes in policies and procedures about how things are done, you know, how we're clearing cases and not unfounding them because victims are hostile, but because victims are just unable to participate at this time and leaving the door open for when they are able to come forward and participate in a thorough investigation and might be interested in prosecution. If the evidence warrants, obviously, we're not saying that we're sending all these cases to the prosecutor's office. So we have a new video. We have a new social media kit that we do every year. And we have graphics that have been prepared, photographs, and a lot of other useful resources. So people, your listeners can go to our website and they can find all of those. This year, we also created, based on feedback from our constituents, um, they wanted some simple one-page flyers. So we created a Start By Believing uh, Frequently Asked Questions flyer, what to say when someone discloses to you. And again, this isn't just law enforcement, even though our niche is always to improve the criminal justice response. This is us as family members, as mothers and fathers and you know, neighbors, uh, what do we do when people come forward to us? What's the right way to respond? And then 10 reasons to start by believing. So those are just things that we've got going on for the 10th anniversary and the launch of the uh, new video will come out. Well, the first people that will get to see it is the event that we're hosting on March 4th. I'm, I'm really excited about it. We finally figured out 10 years later. Now, keep in mind, as a, as a detective and a sergeant, I don't get to work with victims years later, right? I'm dealing with them in the in the midst of the trauma. So you don't you don't hear many things and you sure don't expect that from victims to thank me, you know, for doing my job at the time. So to be honest with you, intuitively I knew how we would respond to victims was wrong. But I didn't get an opportunity to talk to a lot of victims later. But with Start By Believing in the work that Am Violence Against Women International is doing, we do. We hear from victims all the time about the importance and the impact of being believed and not being believed. So this is the first event of its kind for us. We have three different survivors. There was going to be a fourth male survivor, but unfortunately he had to cancel due to some health problems. But these survivors are going to talk about just that, you know, what it meant to be believed, what it meant to not be believed, and the long-term impact on them. And of course, when we talk about impact on individuals, we're really talking about the impact on our communities, right? The health and safety of all of our communities and the communities we want to live in and we want to raise our children in. So that's my March 4th, and we were going to use that as a fundraiser, but the more that we looked at it and the fact that it was the first time, we've decided to make it free to have as many people be able to participate as possible. So that's March 4th. That is amazing. I know right before the pandemic, and I want to get
get and ask you a question about how COVID has affected all of this. You know, Catherine and I were planning an event in our local jurisdiction that is very similar, where we were going to have victims who were believed and not believed because I, and you talked about this a little bit earlier, and I wanted to get some more of your thoughts uh, about, you know, how important it is to educate our jury pool and how so many, so many members of our community don't really understand sexual assault, don't understand that, you know, the majority of these happen in your home, by somebody, you know, or somebody you're dating and education of the jurors. I think, I think, and I think Catherine feels the same is really going to, what is going to turn the page on sexual assault. I mean, obviously we have to have prosecutors and law enforcement who believe victims, but we need to have jurors believe too. And again, it's important. Now you take a case, you do believe that case occurred as a prosecutor ethically. You need to believe that to, to file charges and take that case to trial. But I think it's just so important that when law enforcement is investigating, it's really starting from an orientation. And and Catherine, you said it. I'll, robbery, robbery I, I have actually seen some <laughs> robbery victims questioned about where they were and why they were there. Uh, I like to use burglary because law enforcement responds to burglaries all the time. And not once in my entire career did I see anybody show up at a burglary and say, prove you had a TV. You know, I mean, can you imagine that we're making a person prove they had a TV before we take a report? Do you know that when it comes to gender-based crimes, there's people that argue that you can't even call them victims? Well, it's the state of art. I mean, it's in every, you know, um, crime victims, bill of rights. I mean, It is a determination that law enforcement makes. And even when a case goes to a jury and a jury comes back with a not guilty, law enforcement is not required to go back and change their findings. It is it is a law enforcement determination. And we go out to that case and we write down victim, witness, suspects. Right. And then the investigation unfolds. And you said this earlier, and I've never quite understood why. Our society, not just cops and prosecutors and other first responders, but why we respond so differently to these crimes? Why is there so much blame? And I think, you know, I've had 40, over 40 years to think about it. (laughs) I think we still live in a culture where, where we really diminish women and women's voices. And, you know, I mean, I grew up with six brothers. I worked in a field with very few women in law enforcement at the time, I fought that. I fought that for most of my career because I kept thinking, no, surely, surely, no. You know, I I, I really had a hard time believing that. But there just is no other type of crime that we see the type of response that we see with sexual assault. And I do think it is about diminishing women's experiences and voices. So whether or not that case gets to a prosecutor, it gets in front of a jury, giving victims the opportunity to tell their stories. And of course, if we give them that opportunity, we're much more likely to get enough information to actually do a thorough investigation, which is required to move that case forward. So it's a win all the way around. It's a win for the survivor to get to hear their stories. It's a win for law enforcement because we get the information that we need to do our job right. And of course, it helps prosecutors and in the end, it helps juries. So it is a goal. We were talking about this year. Last year, we had 942 new pledges to start by believing. And we had 79 new start by believing campaigns. So with the 10th anniversary and all the work that so many communities are doing, including you in this podcast and your listeners, I'm so excited. I'd like to see the 942 pledges doubled this year. And I have no idea how many more new campaigns we might be able to bring in. But, you know, maybe we could see 
you know, some at least a similar number to last year, because I thought 79 new campaigns in one year. And again, remember, these are people who took the time to report to us and send in the information and the news releases, even though I know that there are other types of activities going on out there. So we're looking forward to having a really, really busy year. Going back to all of this, so I want to make sure that your listeners understand that we provide a lot of training and technical assistance to make sure, like I said, that, that we're actually responding. I don't want it to just be a campaign slogan. I want this to be real so that when victims come forward, whoever they come forward to, that that person knows how to most efficiently and effectively and compassionately respond. So last year, we um, had 137,660 hours of training completed by our constituents. And keep in mind, that's free training because the only training right now that we charge for is our conference. We also hosted 14 criminal justice focused webinars last year, 14 new webinars. I mean, we've got like, I don't know, 55 on our website that's archived. That's a lot of new webinars in a year. So I think that's really important. If people are doing this, they're going to need the training um, and the resources to make it real, to make it part of daily practice. This should be embedded. It should be woven throughout all of our responses every day. It's not something we do during Sexual Assault Awareness Month. It's not something we do on our annual Global Start by Believing Day. It's not something we do just because it's the 10th anniversary, right? Our goal is to see us implementing this in daily practices all across our country and in all of our offices. So we're really excited about the launch of the new video and the 10th anniversary of Start by Believing on March 4th. But I wanted to address one thing that you mentioned prior to getting into everything that goes into the video. And that was that this year you're highlighting four victims and one of them is a male. And although it is the End Violence Against Women International Organization, Start By Believing is not limited to women victims. And this year you've been highlighting a gentleman who I followed on social media where he has shared his story. He shared about the abuse and what happened when he made the report of the sexual abuse he suffered. Do you think as more men come forward, that will help change the actual shift in how gender-based or sexual assault cases are treated? And how does End Violence Against Women International work with male victims or with training for cases where men were sexually abused. I am so glad you brought that up. And let me make it clear that Heath had some health problems, so he's not going to be able to participate. But of course, his story has been advertised out there. We're very disappointed, but of course, support him fully in dealing with his health issues. So keep in mind again that since I am a retired sergeant and I brought my law enforcement experience in law enforcement, we only saw about 5% of our caseload were males. So I really, as far as a unit, as far as a sergeant and a supervised detective, now child abuse, we see a lot more male children, not more than women, but it's much more comparable. Adult adolescent sexual assault, 5% is, is what reported. And it's interesting because, of course, male victims are also blamed. They're just blamed in different ways than women are. And of course, there's all kinds of attitudes about gender and, you know, there's so many stereotypes that are out there. So we're not experts because 
we took my expertise and, you know, again, because we work in the criminal justice system. So what we do is we have allies. That's their expertise. And, you know, I don't plan to start a new career at some point. So I, I you know, I don't think I'm ever going to develop that level of expertise. I listen to their stories like Heath. And of course, I have dealt with male victims. So I'm not saying that they aren't blamed. It's just sometimes different ways. It's usually like, you know, you know, like this. And mechanically, how did that happen? I'll say this. So we ally with um, other organizations like One in Six, Bristlecone Project. And that's really, really important. It's important for me to recognize or at least let you guys know that the reason that our name was End Violence Against Women is because it was the Violence Against Women Act that actually motivated me to start a nonprofit. You have to remember that with the passage of VAWA in 1994, and of course, we didn't see the immediate response, right? It took many years. But I remember being invited to sit on committees to review grants. And back in those days, 90% of the grants that were submitted and funded were domestic violence. And it was interesting to me because San Diego PD had a sex crimes unit started in, starting in 1971. Our DV unit didn't start. We were one of the first in the country, the first family justice center. And that wasn't until like 1993. And yet I'm watching this culture. And I think the OJ Simpson case actually was a catalyst for domestic violence in this country. But all of a sudden we made all these incredible strides when it came to domestic violence. Not that we don't have a ways to go, but we've made much more strides. We're, we're getting there with sexual assault, but it's been much more slower coming. So in Violence Against Women was really to capitalize on my belief in VAWA and the reason for VAWA, not to negate male survivors, not to negate child abuse. For example, I absolutely know the importance of child abuse, but we don't do child abuse. And why? Because when I founded EVA, there were lots of organizations doing fantastic child abuse work and lots of detectives doing great child abuse work. Remember that my goal was to fill a need where no one was doing the work. So it's never to say that those other crimes aren't important, but as the founder, I stay very focused on what we were founded to do and not try to duplicate or hone in on areas that other people are doing really well. And I think that's actually one of the failures, why so many nonprofits fail. You get board members who have interest in lots of things, they're passionate, but I think at least my experience is that you really have to focus on what you were created to do. Now, it's not to say that it doesn't change, but that hasn't changed. We still have a long ways to go when it comes to addressing violence against women. And in the meantime, of course, our speakers, our presenters, we will work with all those allies out there who make that their niche to address those very, very important issues. And I think it's important that you recognize yeah. what you guys do well and that you can partner with other organizations that do their thing well and that you can kind of work together to move the cause forward. I do want to ask about the impact of COVID-19 because it's had an impact on, on, on cases throughout the country. You know, most of the country is paused in terms of jury trials, but crime doesn't stop. Sexual assault definitely doesn't stop. And so what has how has Start by Believing or just the organization in general, how has it been impacted by the pandemic? Well, obviously, canceling our 2020 conference a week, you know, a couple of weeks out was an incredible financial burden. I mean, that was about a $600,000 hard cost loss. And then, of course, who would have thought 
last February when I canceled it, that we would be hosting a virtual conference in 2021. I'm hoping, of course, that in 2022, we will be hosting a live annual conference in San Francisco. I'm very, very excited that we could possibly be there um, based on the vaccine. So I will say this, that the folks last year, because remember, you know, we really started to get a grip on where COVID was going, you know, late February, March, right? And so we quickly saw folks pivoting. And so when I think about those 70 new campaigns that I talked about, that was just last year, those people pivoted from doing live events to doing virtual events. And even this year, one of our big Start By Believing programs is in Yavapai, Arizona, and they do an amazing event every year. And they couldn't do it. And this year, like us, they're doing a very uh, sophisticated virtual Start By Believing campaign. They're going to have the same types of speakers. We just won't be there in person. We're going to, you know, each be there with our piece. Um, so I think people were amazing. So that's why maybe maybe we can double the 79 from last year, you know, because people are much more comfortable today. You know, there's some things that, that COVID has made better. We've done some training, brought in some folks in the field doing the interviews virtually. We worked with the community in California that we're doing. They were so amazing with their response. Their SART community got together to come up with a protocol to do sexual assault exams at home, not do-it-yourself kits. The cop would show up with the kit, leave it at the front door, stand by. The nurse examiner would be on a team's meeting type of program and be instructing the victim. I mean, I've seen some communities do some amazing work to try to deal with COVID. But we we were really uh, involved in encouraging virtual interviews. I, I wanted to say, though, I don't want virtual interviews to be an option just during COVID. I've always thought that we need to make reporting less um, intimidating. And it's why we believe in online reporting. And it's not to replace an interview. There will be an interview, just like a prosecutor is going to want to meet that victim before they take that case to trial. Of course, it's going to be an interview. But why don't we make it easier for victims to come forward? And why don't we ask questions in a, you know, a pre-filled form in a trauma-informed way? We set the police department up for a better interview and getting the information they need. And we allow victims to take these cases or reporting one step at a time. So I, we, we just got a grant actually from the American Bar Endowment. And it actually doesn't provide funding for us, but it allows us to partner with a technology firm to create a widget to provide a trauma-informed sexual assault victim interview that victims can complete on their own. Because imagine, especially now with technology, right? And and young people, of course, were always much more comfortable going to technology and, you know, thinking about these things in the privacy of their own home versus a police station with two detectives in an interview room that looks like an interrogation room, um, you know, and some of the other things that we see. So I hope that some of these things that we're doing, like virtual interviews, that we'll continue to do. And again, just that first interview, let's, let's work 
to not only start by believing, but try to meet victims where they are. Try to reduce the barriers and the challenges to reporting. And one of the ways to do that is to let them provide information in a safe environment. And I don't just mean safe physically, I mean mentally and emotionally. Someplace that's not threatening, someplace that's not scary, someplace where I don't have to drive down to downtown San Diego and deal with one-way streets and parking downtown, right? That's all stressful for people. Getting childcare, you know, getting out of work. If, if people can do, you know, report online to start 24-7, 365. So that's, that's another project that we've been working on for a really long time. So I think, like I said, COVID's going to give us some gifts with all the pain <laughs> that, that we'll take out of this in the end, I think. Joanne, I couldn't agree more. Through COVID, we actually found a lot of ways that work better for victims. We began teleforensic interviews of children, which has actually helped in reducing the re-traumatization of victims, especially of sexual offenses. Melissa and I also learned during COVID of a great company called Jado. It's a lot like the one you're talking about developing. They work with universities and private industry to find ways for victims to be able to make anonymous reports of sexual assault if they want, or to be able to link with other victims who have a similar MO or the same suspect, so they could actually come forward together to help reduce some of that trauma or fear. But we would be remiss if we didn't highlight some of the webinars and training that you talked about. Melissa and I are big fans. We've both taken some of Ivawi's trainings, and we highly recommend that everybody go to evawint.org, and again, we'll have that in the notes, to either donate, sign up, or take trainings. And of course, there is also the Start by Believing campaign. And of course, Start by Believing is startbybelieving.org. So we want to make sure that everybody goes to both websites. There's important information on both. But one of the big things is the launch of the 10-year anniversary and the video of Start With Believing. And I know you said that you changed your mind and you took it away from being a fundraiser because you wanted to make it an event that so many people could be a part of. So what should our listeners do and how should they register for the event on March 4th? If you go to the Start By Believing website, there'll be a pop-up. And the first thing that you're going to see is this event on March 4th. Something else I wanted to talk to you about. We're doing these small group meetings too, where we're working with communities who are trying, for example, to figure out how to get others on board. And there's three of those, which is going to provide an opportunity for communities to share recommendations. So versus us giving them new tools and information, this is really about having Start by believing communities have an opportunity to get together, to learn from each other, to motivate each other, because it's it's all about hope, right? It's all about getting excited and feeling that we're not alone in this battle every day. So if you go to our website, Start By Believing, the pop-up you will see is for the event on March 4th. Right now, we have so many Start By Believing projects in progress, and I'm having a hard time keeping them straight. But the Start By Believing 10 Years and Counting, which is the launch of the video and listening to the voices of um, survivors and Sergeant Keith Reed, retired Metropolitan D.C. Police Department, that is on March 4th, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. And again, just go to startbybelieving.org. You should see a pop-up where you can register for that event. And it's free. We decided to change that. Like you said, we changed the platform. We've never done this before. And as much as we need the funding, we felt it more important to get the information out there and make it part of the 10-year anniversary. 
A we gift. love that gift. And that is all the time that we have today. If you want to learn more about End Violence Against Women International, uh, please visit their website at evawintl.org and follow them on social media at evawint. It has been, truly been a pleasure to have you today. And the floor is yours um, for any closing statements about either the campaign or uh, the organization in general. Well, we have Allison Jones Lockwood manages our social media. Oh, we're starting a TikTok account, though, but we're not managing it. We have a survivor out of Colorado that's going to be managing that. But you guys can really help by adding the hashtag start by believing. And there are other graphics and those types of social media tools available on the start by believing website. We like those, though, because, of course, we can follow and see what folks are doing. We do a, after the annual day and the month, we do put together a video. So if you hashtag and we can follow and see what you're doing and share with our constituents, you might actually be in our highlight video that we like to do every year after the event. Thank you again, Joanne, for everything that you do and the End Violence Against Women International Organization does to educate, provide services and training to help eradicate violence against women. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe. And you can find us on social media, No Gray Zone RRC, on Instagram or Twitter, and No Gray Zone on Facebook. Be sure to be using the hashtag Start by Believing throughout the month of March. There are no excuses when it comes to sexual assault or not having the right response when it comes to violence against women. Thank you for listening. This has been a No Gray Zone podcast. I'm just good at caring too much.